everyone and welcome to today's episode of UK in a Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast. As you might have guessed, if you've got keen ears, I'm not your usual host. My name is Paula Surridge and I'm one of the deputy directors at UK in a Changing Europe. I'm thrilled that my guest today is Dr. Mark Pack, who, as well as being president of the Liberal Democrats and having been named the fifth most influential Lib Dem in 2020, is also the author of the soon-to-be-published Polling Unpacked, great name, The History, Uses and Abuses of Political Opinion Polls. Now, this is my first time in the host chair for a podcast. Mark himself, though, is a veteran hosting the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast, which is also highly recommended if you like a dose of British politics chats um, along the way. Mark, welcome. Congratulations on the publication of the new book. I think that's your third. Easy question to start off with. What made you want to write a book about polling? Really, I decided to write the book because I realised there were a lot of things that I felt I didn't know enough about. And as somebody quite interested in polling, I also took the punt that I hoped, therefore, other people might also find those questions interesting ones to answer. And a good example of that, I guess, is from the early history of opinion polling. Now, the traditional story is that there were lots of straw polls or, you know, the Reader's Digest magazine in the US getting its readers to send in cards saying who they were going to vote for. And they were all horribly wrong and inaccurate. And then along came George Gallup riding to the rescue with modern scientific polling. But there's a whole other story about how those pre-Gallup, sort of late uh, 19th, early 20th century surveys, maybe one should call them perhaps rather than polls, how there was a lot of really clever thought that went into trying to get them to be right. And they lasted for quite a long time because they were quite often reasonably accurate. And so while it's definitely true that that revolution that Gallup and others pioneered really from the 1930s onwards has completely transformed for the better opinion polling, I do feel a bit sorry for all of those people who came before him who actually some of whom were stupid and some were dumb and some were often wrong but there are also people who were bright and smart and often right who got somewhat airbrushed out of the story. Some of our listeners may know I'm also something of a polling nerd myself so we'll try not to descend into too much nerdy jargon. For me the thing that first got me interested in polling and voting behaviour was the polling miss of the 1992 general election which I I think in the book you call that the second great British polling disaster. I was too young to remember the first one, which I think was 1970. But I was really struck in the book by your account of a polling miss in the US in 1948. And I wondered if you could just talk us through some of the reasons for that miss, because I think they seem to still be very relevant today as well. The 1948 polling miss is made famous by a photo that there was a the Chicago Tribune newspaper ran on its front page, its first edition, a banner headline of Dewey defeats Truman. And unfortunately, they got it wrong. Truman actually defeated Dewey. And so there's a very famous photo of Truman holding up that front page, which many listeners will have stumbled across it at some point, even if they don't particularly follow American politics. It just gets used, particularly when there are stories about polling misses. Now, the full story about why the Chicago Tribune got that front page wrong isn't just about the polls. It's there was a series of different errors. It was also sort of misreading some of the early election figures that were coming in on the night. It was rushing too much to try to run the story before it had enough evidence. But 
at heart, definitely, the Poles were getting things wrong in 1948. And it's really for a mix of reasons that are very familiar, I think, to people who have maybe slightly older listeners who can remember the 1970 miss or the 1992 miss, or indeed some of the more recent polling controversies in Britain, which is one of the things that pollsters really struggle to do is to get a representative sample. That is essentially because people who are willing to talk to pollsters are not always typical (laughs) of the rest of the world. There are then also additional issues that when you think, well, who is a representative sample of? And that difference between the population as a whole or the people who are going to vote in an election tomorrow. And if turnout is significantly less than 100%, which it is most of the time in most elections, actually the difference between those two can be quite significant. Certainly reading the industry's post-mortem on the 1948 result, it feels quite familiar territory. And I think that reflects the fact that while polling definitely has got better over the years, fundamentally the basic struggles of how do you get a representative sample have continued. And there are all sorts of smart ways to try and deal with that that have been developed. But on the other hand, there have been broader trends that in some ways have made it harder. Far fewer people have landline phone numbers now, for example, than 50 years ago. And even if you ring one, people are less willing to respond to a survey and so on. So in a way, pollsters have had to work really hard just to stand still. (laughs) And therefore, that underlying, you know, what went wrong in 48 still feels like it could have been a report on what went wrong in a 21st century election. I was just really surprised by how similar the issues were, because you sort of assume that polling methodology has moved on, but the issues don't seem to have changed very much. One of the issues there that particularly struck me was around undecided voters. So a particular hobby horse of mine is the kind of don't knows in polling, as I'm sure you know. How do those undecided voters matter for thinking about political shifts? And I'm thinking particularly right now, kind of in UK polling, we're in the midterm of an election. Most ordinary people aren't thinking about who they're going to vote for tomorrow until someone asks them. So how do they influence the polls at the moment? This is a really important point because it's one of the main explanations, most likely, of the differences we see between some pollsters at the moment. Why, for example, Opinion has a much smaller Labour lead than some other pollsters. And the basic dilemma, and I think it is a dilemma because there isn't a right or wrong answer on this. The basic dilemma is if you ask somebody, who are you going to vote for if there was an election tomorrow? There's a chunk of people who will in some form say, don't know, not sure. And what do you do with those answers? Because what we know is that if there is really a general election tomorrow and the best way of getting figures in the poll today that will be as close as possible to the result tomorrow isn't simply to leave those as don't knows and exclude them from the final figures. It's to push those people and to squeeze them, as it were, to say, come on, are you really not sure? Or who did you vote for last time? Might you vote? And there's all sorts of ways of squeezing the don't knows to try and get a definite answer out of them. And we know that if you do various techniques like that just before an actual polling day, that generally makes your figures more accurate. However, it is a slightly artificial process because you're saying to somebody, I don't really believe your answer. Come on, give me another answer. And I think it's a philosophical debate almost as to whether in between elections, is it sensible to try to replicate that squeeze? Look, put you on the spot. You've got your ballot paper. There isn't a don't know or not sure box you can put your cross in. Should we be trying to replicate that in between elections? Because that you know, probably gives us the figures that are closest to what would happen if there was an election tomorrow. Or by doing that squeezing, are we artificially giving a degree of certainty to the figures 
that isn't really there. And I think this is one of the questions at the moment. There's a whole batch of people who voted Conservative in 2019 who are currently unsure. How do you reflect that in the headline figures? And I think this is therefore what I hope is one of the lessons people will draw from the book, which is that it's very rare that the headline figure in a poll gives you everything that's sensible to know about what the poll found. And therefore, it sort of doesn't matter that Opinium and, say, YouGov at the moment have slightly different figures, as long as you know the reason. And if you know the reason for the difference, you can then work out how to use that knowledge sensibly. You spoke there a little bit about kind of creating artificial answers. And that moves me on to the next thing that I wanted to ask about. So I teach polling and polling methodology to students at a whole range of different levels. And when I ask them why polls are wrong, the first answer they give, unless they've actually done the reading and they know something about Gallup and Literary Digest, the first answer they give is that people lie to pollsters. And, and, and that's across a whole range of years and a whole range of levels. Do you think that really is a big problem? No, there doesn't seem to be very much evidence at all that that is the case. And there are some really clever techniques that pollsters use to deal with questions where you might have genuine concerns about the honesty of people's answers, either out of, say, social embarrassment or fear of the government. So a lot of these techniques are used, for example, in social science research into questions around sexuality, for example. And so one of the really clever techniques is you give people a list of five questions, four of which you don't really want to know the answer to, but the fifth is the one you really want to know the answer to. And there may be yes, no questions. And you say to the person, don't give me your answer to each individual question. Just tell me how many yeses and how many noes. And if you also poll the four questions that are the normal questions, as it were, you can then work out, well, OK, on average, the people who got that fifth question, yeah, on average, half of them gave an extra yes. So that tells you, OK, for half of them, the answer was yes. So there's lots of clever techniques that can be used to tease out occasions where people are reluctant to give answers. And I think the general lesson from those and the accuracy of polling most of the time, just before an election or just before a referendum, is that honesty is not a huge issue. There are obviously cases where one should be cautious. There was a trend in the US a few years back to be, for example, very suspicious about polls in terms of what white voters would say about a black candidate of their own party, and that they might be default to telling the pollster that yes they were going to stick with their party as ever but some racism might then creep in at the ballot box so there are definitely exceptions to be aware of but fundamentally the problem isn't people's honesty it's how representative are the people the pollsters manage to talk to of the wider public or the wider electorate they're trying to get results from. I should say with that I also ask those groups of students to fill out questionnaires as as an exercise about how difficult it is to fill out polls And I tell every group of students that they can be whoever they want to be. They can be their imaginary friend. And I've only ever in all the years have one student who actually filled it out kind of untruthfully as as somebody else. I think people's instincts tend to be to just answer honestly if if they find the questions interesting. Now, you touched on something there that I'm really interested in about how it might start to change UK polling. So not the lying to the pollsters, but a certain level of distrust in particular pollsters. I think I've read some material that suggests that's starting to happen in the US and may have been a problem in the last presidential election polling. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that might introduce another element of response bias? And do you think that might evolve in the UK context? The big unknown on that is I'm not convinced that pollsters get far enough into their script for people to really clue into who it is who's polling them. 
So I think there definitely is an issue of some people are more likely to just refuse to be polled and how typical or not are they of the wider electorate. But I think this idea of sort of differential bias, depending on, say, who the pollster is and in the US, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat pollster, I'd say is case not proven so far because I've had a summer job at a polling firm for a couple of years, for example. And my experience of that is people who don't want to be polled, they cut you off really before they find out. <laughs> exactly where you're from. That's interesting. It reminds me and brings me to, if you spend any time on kind of polling Twitter, you will have come across the the, uh, the meme, the kind of I'll wait for salvation meme, which I think even appeared on mugs at the time of the election. And this brings me on to what can sometimes be puzzling, I think, for people who don't you know, like to get into the nitty gritty of polling, which is this kind of house effects. You, you touched on it a little bit earlier, Opinium have recently changed some of their methodology, which makes them look a little bit different to some of the others. And I think that sometimes leads people to talk about bias in different polling firms, when in fact it's, it's differences in methodology. So I wondered if you could talk us through the kind of key differences that produce those house effects. You know, what are the big things that they do different from each other that mean that some pollsters pick up larger Lib Dem vote shares or particularly even on smaller parties still like Reform UK? I guess there are three areas. The first, which matters a lot less now than it used to, is is the polling done online, on the phone or face to face? And there have been periods of time where it looks like there's quite a significant difference between different modes, partly because the newer modes, people have got better at using them and because pollsters quite often mix modes as well. It's worth knowing how a poll was conducted, particularly because a face-to-face poll is almost always a poll with a much bigger budget. And so it's not so much necessarily that face-to-face is better, but it's a bigger budget, and therefore the bigger budget might result in higher quality. But fundamentally, mode matters not so much. The second area of difference is how party names are used. So, for example, do you prompt in the voting tension question to mention the Green Party or not. I think a lot of the evidence is that that impact is not nearly as big as people think it might be. But there are definitely cases where that sort of thing matters, especially in, say, elections for maybe a mayor, where you've got three, four, five, six, seven candidates. How many of them do you name in the question? And also whether you ask other questions before you get to the voting intention question. This was something that often resulted in Gallup having higher ratings for the Lib Dems when Paddy Ashdown was party leader in that Gallup would ask first about party leaders and then about voting intention. And then the third main area of difference is around turnout. Again, this is in a way why house effects persist, because there isn't a straightforward right or wrong answer. So one of the very best pollsters in the world, consistently most successful pollster, Ann Selzer in the US, who particularly has made her name polling in Iowa and several times had polls that are out of the mainstream, but then turned out to be right. So she's one of the very few people who has been out of the mainstream and right and then done that more than once. Almost every outlier who turns out to be brilliant then flops or disappears quietly from the scene in terms of not being quite so successful in the future. And her approach is really simple, that she basically takes at face value what people say about how likely they are to vote. And it works really well for her. But we also know that people's answers to those questions are pretty inaccurate often. And so a lot of pollsters get into trying to do much more complicated modelling because you think we know this answer is not very accurate. We'll model it more. And the risk with the more complicated modelling is when you get it right, you're better. But you're introducing so many things that means you could get it wrong. 
And so Anselza's probably most famous triumph was the 2008 Iowa caucus won by Barack Obama with a huge, completely unprecedented surge in turnout. And her polling, because she took a face value what people were saying about whether they were likely to vote or not, picked that up. Other pollsters who, based on previous evidence, more complicated modelling, essentially modelled out <laughs> this apparent surge, because I thought it can't be true, were wrong. But there are plenty of occasions where cleverer modelling does work. And I think the problem with turnout effects in that sense is it's basically impossible to know in advance of an election which of those different approaches is more likely to be right. And so although you do get sometimes people trying to be quite clever about, well, this is the one that worked last time, or this one in abstract sounds a better approach to turn out, there's always a real risk there. And and Anne Seltzer is really unusual in having had a methodology that was different and worked better more than once. As I said, nearly everyone who is the outlier once, because they're different, doesn't manage to repeat that feat subsequently. I now feel fearful for my email inbox about any other pollsters <laughs> who are listening to me will feel uh, downgraded everyone into a league below Anselsa. <laughs> it also makes me very glad that most of my job entails explaining elections afterwards rather than trying to predict them. <laughs> much easier job to do. <laughs> so much easier predicting after the event. So much easier. One of the things you touched on there, actually, mm. was the mode effects. And our mm. listeners might be particularly interested in that because it was quite a big deal during the referendum campaign. Um, with the differences between them. Can you talk us through that? Or is that a bit too long ago to remember all the details? I guess it's an interesting question about to what extent it was about mode and to what extent it was about turnout. And because one of the other differences, for example, between telephone pollsters and online pollsters is online pollsters have a database of the people they contact to do their polls and they keep your answers. So they could ask you a question today And then in a year's time, they could ask you some questions and refer back to your answer from a year ago in terms of the modelling or the projections they might make. So things like, are people who voted Tory five years ago more or less likely to be voting Tory now? An internet pollster will have the actual data to go back to look at, while telephone pollsters don't keep those sorts of records. They're normally talking to different people each time. And so you're having to rely on what people claim they remember about several years ago, and that's a much riskier proposition. So online pollsters do have this really significant advantage. But I think the thing that really made the Brexit referendum result sort of different, even in in hindsight, was the turnout. There was lots of people who one might normally expect wouldn't vote in a ballot such as that did actually go and vote. From what I remember, I'm not convinced it's necessarily mode that was the real factor there. And of course, it's it's much harder to predict a 52-48. You can get it the wrong way around and be right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is, yeah, political pollsters have it really hard because not just political pollsters, more specifically, political pollsters trying to do elections and voting intention polls have it really hard. Because if you think at the moment, if it were possible to do accurate polls in Russia, it wouldn't matter that much whether your result was that Putin's popularity was, say, 70% versus 78%. The point is, you get a high number or you get maybe 23%. It's a very low number. Whether it's 23, 26, 20, that sort of range doesn't really matter. And likewise, if you're doing polling for, say, a mobile phone company and you know, do people think they're value for money, it doesn't really matter whether the true number is 63 or 67 or 69. If you know it's up around two thirds, that tells you 
Unfortunately, with elections, especially with elections with, say, a first-past-the-post electoral system, being three or four points out can be the difference between a landslide and a defeat. And therefore, for elections, the standard that we expect of pollsters, I think it's often forgotten just what a tough standard it is. Even in some of the sort of catastrophic polling misses of the past, if you look at how far out the figures have been, if those questions had been things like, do you think Britain should be in the EU or not? The difference between the wrong figure and the true figure, that sort of margin would still have given you a pretty good rough idea of where public opinion sat. It's only with elections that 41, hooray, 35, disaster, that's a quite a small yeah. range. Yeah, it's a tough, tough job. In the book, as well as talking about the kind of technical aspects of polling and samples, you also talk about question wording effects. I mean, I could talk about those for another hour, but I want to ask you a very specific question about it, which is perhaps topical at the moment. So one of the ones you talk about are the kind of, would you be more likely to do something if this thing happened? So for listeners, they take the form of kind of, if Gareth Southgate was leader of the England party, would you be more or less likely to vote for the England party? And we've seen quite a lot of polling of that kind in the first part of this year when there was a lot of speculation about a Conservative Party leadership contest. As someone who's been involved in choosing party leaders yourself, would you advise members to pay close attention to these to find their kind of winning formula to find their best leader? I think more or less likely questions are really problematic. Let me give you an example which is just so wonderfully absurd. In 2017, Republican Roy Moore was running for election to the US in a what they call a special election, what we would call a by-election in what was up till then a safe Republican seat. And he was a very controversial character. He'd actually twice been sacked from the Alabama Supreme Court for malpractice, for example. But during the election, something much more serious was there was a series of multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, including assault of a 16-year-old. And partway through the election, there was a poll which gave this question, given the allegations that have come out about Roy Moore's alleged sexual misconduct against four underaged women, are you more or less likely to support him as a result of these allegations? What percentage do you think, you may be able to remember from reading it, but what, I guess, what percentage do you think said more likely? 20? Close, 29% said they were more likely to vote. Less likely, 38%, no difference, 33%. So what on earth are we meant to make of a question that says being on the receiving end of multiple credible allegations of sexual assault, 29% say they're more likely? Well, one thing we do know is that despite it being a safe Republican seat, he went on to lose. So actually the public opinion did move massively against him. And I think what that 29% tells us is that a lot of people answer more likely not focusing on the word more at all. And that either people are sort of wanting still to express who they support and therefore they go for the answer that is positive for the person they're wanting to support, even though they might actually be less likely than they were before, they're still going to vote for them. They pick, therefore, the more likely option. It may also be a little bit of cynical game playing that you know that the poll is going to get reported and you want the result to be more favourable to your side. There's a whole set of reasons that I go into in the book, but I think that really starkly illustrates the limitations of more or less likely. But what can be useful, as with any broken tool, is if you consistently use it. And therefore, if you use it across different people or the same person across time, even if the numbers need treating with a lot of care, the trend 
can be quite illuminating. So I think at the moment, for example, the polling around, do people prefer Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer as Prime Minister? And then the polling, that do they prefer Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer? I don't think in itself, the contrast between those two questions is that illuminating, because it is very different being Chancellor to being Prime Minister. But the trend in the difference between those two definitely is illuminating. And so we've seen that that apparent boost that the Tories would get from switching to Rishi Sunak has somewhat faded. Now, one could argue about what the true figure really is and whether it's actually a net boost or a net you know, decline. But knowing that whatever the pro-Tory factor is, is lesser now than it was, is certainly useful. In answer to your question about polling and choosing a party leaders, I think you have to be quite careful about looking at questions as well that are ones where the context doesn't change massively if somebody does become leader. So questions about whether or not you think someone's up to a job. Well, actually, once they're in the job, people, they start looking like they could do the job because they literally are doing the job. But there are obviously questions that can be quite useful. And I think this is also where though focus groups can be particularly helpful because they can get into, you know, why was Ed Miliband never that successful as Labour Party leader? It's because fundamentally to a lot of voters, he just came over as a bit weird. And that is horrible and cruel and unkind. But that's part of democracy that in the end, we've decided that it's better to let all sorts of cruel and unkind people have a vote than not, than to try and filter that out. And that came out, I think, quite clearly in focus groups in a way that polling questions were not in themselves quite as illuminating. There's a lovely example at the moment, or at least from last year, I think it's still true this year. In focus groups that Deborah Mattinson, before she started working for Keir Starmer, focus groups that she ran where she asked voters what animal they associated Keir Starmer with, eagle was one of the most common answers. And I think eagle is really interesting because eagle is a bit cold, a bit distant, a bit admirable, not particularly warm or cuddly. You know, you don't get cute photos of eagles shared on social media. There's a lot of meaning bundled up in the choice of eagle. And I think that's really interesting Because by asking people to pick an animal, you can get people to be really expressive, even if they don't particularly have a great way with words themselves. You can get, therefore, that gut feeling. Eagle, as an answer, is very different from if people had picked Black Labrador or Fox or Kitten or Octopus. Now, there is something about Eagle. Quite often, I think for those sorts of leadership questions, the focus groups are actually more illuminating than the opinion polls. And I think that's a really important point that opinion polls and focus groups do different jobs and they shouldn't be yeah. set up as competitors to each other. They, yeah. they do different things and tell us different things. As well as writing this fascinating book, you also made available incredible data set of opinion polls going back to, yeah. to 1955. And I just wondered what earth prompted you to start that because if I even try to go back kind of you know to 2001 it becomes impossible so why did you start take that on well 1943 there's there's an extra 12 years so what I'm trying to think how I can reasonably describe uh, my decision as a teenager to spend large amounts of time in the local public library looking up numbers on old microfiches. I'm not sure there's a good answer to your question, but the immediate trigger was a TV interview that David Owen gave in autumn 86, I think it was, where he was being questioned about why the Alliance has slipped in the polls. And he came up with an answer about how the Alliance always slipped in the autumn, that there was a seasonal effect. 
And this is a really weird claim to make. You know, people know that you need to seasonally adjust unemployment numbers, for example. But seasonally adjust polling figures, that was a real... I mean, it was quite a good defence because it sounded knowledgeable in the interview didn't have a riposte to it. But for some reason, that just made me think, I wonder if that's true. Let's go and look up some numbers. And that's what got me going. And of course, once you've started collecting such data, there's almost a fear of ever stopping. <laughs> but also, it's it's quite curious how poor the records are. There are academics who have gathered various data sets, and they very kindly shared their data with me over the years. But by therefore subsuming their work as well as adding in my own researches, you know, the data set I've got is the largest that there is. But I know there are still quite a lot of gaps in it. If you look at the data for, say, a parliament in the 1950s, you'll see more firms recorded doing polls in the immediate run up to a general election, because that's a better documented period than early in the parliament. And there's almost certainly, you know, a fair amount of missing data points. But it's one of those things that it feels like it should be an obvious bit of public record. But actually, because nobody systematically gathered all of them for years and years, we don't have that record other than the bits that I've managed to fill in. Now, of course, courtesy of things like Wikipedia, Britain Elects and so on, there are four or five really good sets of current polls you can find. But if you want the polls from the 1950s, you still have to rely on teenage me in Camden Public Library. <laughs> I was so curious, was it true that the Alliance always slipped in the autumn? Possibly. <laughs> so there was definitely a little bit of a pattern, as in, for example, a slippage had happened the previous autumn. And so there was a little bit of a pattern, whether it's a phantom pattern that is, you know, just random events occasionally give you an apparent pattern when it's really just random. I think, again, case not proven. It sounds like a good blog anyway. <laughs> We're nearly out of time and I could I could go on with this for a lot longer. Bringing things right up to the minute, having gone all the way back to 1955, we've got local elections coming up in a few weeks time. This is a slightly naughty question because I don't think we'll agree on an answer. <laughs> but for predicting the results of the next general election, would you rather have those local election results on the 9th of May or a nationally representative poll done on the same day? Ooh, I would pick the local elections, uh, <laughs> partly because there will be other polls. <laughs> But also, I think whilst there is not a sort of straight, easy correlation between local election results and subsequent general election results, there is a relationship of sorts. And crucially, in a way, the local election results are therefore like doing a whole series of focus groups. It gives you a whole set of insights into what are the different patterns within politics so, for example, how the Lib Dems do in Northern England in various Labour-run councils, how those Lib Dem Labour contests go, will give a really useful insight into how much enthusiasm there really is for the Labour Party. Similarly, it's likely that you know the Lib Dem results in blue wall areas, on average, will be better than in non-blue wall areas. But how much of a difference there is gives a bit of a hint as to how much better the party might do in blue wall parliamentary constituencies come the next general election compared to the national position. You know, the election that in many ways, you know, Lib Dems are hoping to repeat next time is 1997, where actually the party went down in the national vote share, obviously would rather it went up, but went down in the national vote share and yet more than doubled its number of MPs. So as in the support in the places that really mattered soared and hence produced a then at the time record number of MPs for the party. And so that's you know, for example, for the Lib Dems, or indeed, if you're interested in politics overall, where the Lib Dems are, you know, once again, part of that question of what will happen in the next election, knowing whether there is a real difference between our areas of greatest strength and not, 
So I think there's lots of things a full set of local election results will help reveal in a way that a national poll, certainly a national poll of a standard type sample, wouldn't really, you know, wouldn't tell us. Which one would you pick out of interest? I'd pick the national poll. <laughs> well, what were the signs in the national polls in the run up to the 97 election that would have pointed you towards the number of Lib Dem MPs was going to double? I think you can look at the local election results and see the run up much better. Of course, there are examples where the Lib Dems have done so well in local elections and then flopped subsequently. So it's not a simple direct relationship, but I think there is real value in those local results. Your answer and mine to some extent come down to the, the lesson that you hoped people would learn from the book that actually the headline figures aren't really the story in either case. The headline figures for the local elections, the headline figures for a national poll, there's always more going on underneath that needs careful interpretation. Absolutely. And, and in a way, I think the main lesson, which I hadn't quite thought about it this way before starting to write the book, but I definitely did by having the time I'd finished writing it, is that the answer to polls being inaccurate or unclear or ambiguous is look at more polls. You know, the cure to almost all of the problems with polls is look at more of them. Sometimes also look at other things as well, like focus groups and the like. But the reaction to a poll being wrong shouldn't be to ignore polls. It should be, let's look at more of them. Excellent advice. I could talk about this for much longer. There are some fantastic anecdotes in the book that I wanted to get onto and haven't quite managed to, including how a poster knocking on a door prevented a suicide, which was, I think, perhaps my favourite story of the whole book. But unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating to chat to you. Mark's book, Polling Unpacked, The History, Uses and Abuses of Political Opinion Polls, comes out in April. April the 11th. In the meantime, a quick plug for an upcoming UK and a Changing Europe event. We'll be launching our Constitution and Governance in the UK report on the 29th of March, and it's accompanied by a conference on the day, which you can register to stream online. Thank you for listening and thank you especially to Mark, both for the, the fascinating read. I mean, I teach polling. I knew a lot about the Literary Digest Gallup, but I still learned things from reading the book. So definitely have a read. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paula. <laughs>